This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee, and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall. And joining me today, it's not it's not Pete George. Pete George is um, on a beach in Portugal drinking Superbock, the last I heard from him. So uh, uh, I've got to be honest, if ever there was a good reason to miss doing a pod, it's that. Um, so he's thoroughly and utterly forgiven for that one. But I'm delighted to say we are joined on the pod by Stuart White, who was uh, is currently um, head scout, I think that's correct, Stu, um, for Hull City but um, was for um, 14 years, I think I'm right in saying, um, uh, part of the West Bromwich Albion recruitment team. Have I got my numbers correct, first of all? You have, yeah. Just between 14 and 15 years from being part-time for nine or so to being full-time for five, yeah. So, I mean, the timing is pertinent wonderful if you you like because obviously the transfer window has just slammed shut and I think it always leaves us all with a lot of questions about how do these things work? Why, you know, why why do transfer windows go the way they 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 go? So we will obviously reminisce a little bit about um, the 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 time at the Albion where, when Stu was there between two thousand and two thousand and fifteen, and also we will look at the bigger picture of how these things work. But before then, we'll just spend a couple of minutes on on your current role, uh, Stu, because as anybody who listened to the preview pod knows, Hull City were my dark horses for the championship championship this season now I'll openly admit that has something to do with the uh, fact that this man here works there and also Lee Darnborough who I had the pleasure of uh, of working with at West Bromwich Albion works there because two people who I think are fantastic at their jobs makes me think that Hull City will be strong this year and you've started pretty well 10 points from uh, from the opening few games uh, three wins and a a draw and and one defeat from five games Stu you you know must it must be pretty pretty happy and from a recruitment point of view um busy ish and then on deadline day whoa yeah busy ish but i think to be fair we were busy right the way through because deadline day itself was actually quite quiet things got over the line on deadline day but obviously a lot of the work had been done prior to that and deals had been set up players were in the offing for quite some time before they actually landed in on that day 
So it wasn't just a, a manic final day of the window. Um, things were, in fact, quite quiet. Um, our organisation is a little bit broader than it had been in previous seasons. We've got a lot more staff. We have a um, a more structured hierarchy now. Um, and things were in abeyance a little bit in terms of like Jaden Philogene not coming in until right at the death for various reasons. But that was still well known to most people through the press that he was on his way in. Um, so the deadline day itself was not, as I say, too manic. Um, the whole window, obviously, we brought, I think it was 11 players in total um, through different avenues, really. Um, some British, some foreign. Um, and yeah, I think overall, I think this is probably the strongest squad, even though we can, when you're, when you're part of it, you look at things and think maybe there are little holes here and there. But looking at it holistically, I would say this is the strongest squad we've had in a few years, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. So, uh, my, my my shout of of dark horses uh, is it may may not be may not be miles off. Obviously, um, uh, uh, you know, I wish I, I wish you and Lee and Hull City very well for the season. But I I naturally hope you you finish below the glorious baggies. I'm sorry to say, mate. If we could be one no, and you could be you. two, that would be that that would be absolutely glorious. I don't blame you for that at all. But um, it's um, it's a long, long season, as you say, and we've got. I think for the first time probably in a few years, we've actually got good cover, good options where players can interchange positionally, where you've got like fullbacks or centre-halves or whatever who are equally as proficient and you can just swap them in and out as needed. So um, we've actually got quite a strong squad, as I say. In terms of being dark horses, listen, who knows? I think when you work for a club, you never actually have ultimate confidence in that. You're always wary. You're always a little bit reluctant to get carried away. And you're always looking, to be fair, at the next window and the one after that. Even you're not you're not just resting on your laurels now. When, you know now a a window is um, slammed shut. I had one uh, question from somebody on social media saying, "Are you like Father Christmas? Is, is is does this mean you you sort of like hibernate now for a few months?" It's like no, it's like it's absolutely constant. You, you, we'll be having, I'm sure, probably next week, um, some sort of review of the window, and then you start planning your players for consideration, your your monitoring of players across mainly Europe um, ahead of both the next window and the one after that. So, no, it's not a quiet time at all. I, I always remember because uh, you know, as 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 I say, we, we had the pleasure of, uh, or my pleasure was working with you. Whether that's reciprocated, you know, we, we, uh, I I wouldn't, oh, I wouldn't be, so, yeah, wouldn't be so bold <laughs> as to say, but um, but I had the pleasure of working with you at the Albion, and I remember from uh, fr- from from my days of uh, wandering into the um, uh, into the recruitment room because you had a sofa, it was air conditioned, and you generally had water in your fridge, so you know it was it was a good place to pop in and uh, and and see, but. Um, that you know because we were we were a bit of a nightmare to recruit for in that it, because we were generally either at the top end of one league or the bottom end of another so you you were planning obviously months in advance but you would generally have two lists every year dependent on what division we might be in yeah i think in my time full time i came in full time in 2009 same time as robbie di matteo joined uh, and I think that year we'd just been relegated. So, yeah, we were we, we were looking at maybe trying to, as we did in the end, bounce back straight away. Um, and then, yes, for the next year or two, you are. And I think West Brom at that time, we were always mindful that it didn't take too much to actually get yourselves back in trouble again. Um, so, yes, we did have two lists. But I think we were getting stronger and stronger season for season, I think, until... Uh, maybe the last season we weren't that strong. But I think what caught up with us then was the fact that 
and again, I'm harping back to that time. It's maybe not quite the same now, um, but we were a club whereby in the Premier League, even though our expenditure, our budgets were going higher, they weren't going higher along the same lines as other clubs that were in and around us and above us. They were spending far, far more. We were spending more, but they were spending increasingly more year on year uh, by comparison to ourselves. So we were always struggling to keep up with teams, really. And we always knew that we were in a certain position in the pecking order. And when we were going for players, people wouldn't know necessarily that we were, when you start looking at these players, we were hopeful of, of being in the mix for them. But as time went on and they became more well-known to other clubs, because I think at the time we were quite ahead of the game sometimes in, in, in certain respects as to how we went went about it. But then other clubs obviously catch up with you. And when they're prepared to throw more money at it, there is a distinct pecking order. We knew that obviously at the time you had the Man Uniteds, et cetera, at the very, very top. Then you had the Tottenham's, you had the Everton's, et cetera, et cetera. And then and we, we were probably in like the, the fourth or fifth tier of five in terms of what people, where, where players would want to go. Because they saw us as being a club that might be, as you alluded to, a yo-yo club at the time. Well, I imagine as well what geography club. comes into it as well, doesn't it, Stu? Because you, you, you know, you might, in terms of possibly wages, or even, or even in yeah. terms of stature, be yeah. on a par with, say, a Crystal Palace, yeah. but they can offer London and you can't. We still did. <laughs> we were on the uh, outskirts of London, as far as I was concerned, with some, with, with some negotiations. <laughs> some and creative Venice, geography went on, did it? <laughs> yeah, Hull's not far from London, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's quite a place. Yeah, I, I imagine you've had some some uh, slightly surprised um, Europeans or South Americans pop over when when they've got off the... Uh... Think, was there not that, was there not, that famous story about Janino thinking that Middlesbrough was very close to... <laughs> to London when he when he joined them back in the nineties, even I think. Listen, I think um, it it did play a part. You know, geography did play a part, but at the same time, we were selling them the fact that. And again, you've you you kind of touched on it. I think in a in a prior conversation, whereby players could could see a football club as a good fit for them in terms of their stepping forward in their careers. Hmm. And West Brom were never really going to be a destination club. They were always going to be a club where a player having aspirations of playing at the highest level they could possibly get to would see us as a stepping stone. And that's yeah. not to do the club down because it's a magnificent football club. Um, but at the same time, some players would see that, as I say, maybe Peter Odenwingi at the time might have seen that, even though it didn't quite happen for him that way. Others may well have, again, I think, seen us as a stepping stone to get somewhere that bit higher. And obviously, yeah. even when you go down the loan route, you look at obviously Romilly was the obvious one who actually went on to much bigger and better things, so to speak. But, you know, that was in part the attraction of coming to play for West Brom at the time was it gave them a platform and a, and a chance to get themselves in the shot window to go higher. Well, we, we were chatting off air, weren't we? And I mentioned the Sky documentary around the transfer window and, and how Lois Appenda had um, had his his move to, I think it was Lille, uh, sold to him uh, based on the fact that, you know, they, that they would sell him in a couple of years. And... I thought around that time, I, I I think I think possibly under the new ownership we haven't been as good. Uh, in fact, I know under the new ownership we haven't been as good at, uh, good at this. Um, but I think particularly uh, uh, in the in the Dan years, we were we were good at seeing players as an investment to make money in the future. I, I remember um, Roy Hodgson saying to me in the interview he gave me when uh, when we signed Shane Long, uh, he he I'm pretty sure he actually said the exact words to me this club will sell Shane Long for a lot more than we've just paid for him in a few years' time. 
Yes, that was always part of the business model. But obviously, the biggest part where we were concerned, we were trying to build a squad and build a team that would have a degree of success for West Bromwich Albion, not necessarily preparing those players for their careers to step on and then benefit others. Um, but then it, it's all about, you know, what is success for a club at any given time? And success for us was staying in the Premier League, which, you know, once we got up that time in 2010, we actually did for five or six years while I was still, five years while I was still there, which was an absolute pleasure to see it happen year on year. But, um, but yeah, I think there is that. Shane, I think, cost us, was it four or thereabouts? From Reading, yeah. and to be fair, when Hull took him, it wasn't that wasn't that big a profit. I think it was. Um, I think that was part of a bigger picture, whereby no, I think I, I think his contract was running down, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, but I think at, at the same time, I think um, I don't think some people who shall remain nameless thought <laughs> he was quite as good as others. Did. Now, he's never going to be a massively prolific centre forward, but Shane's Shane's hard work, the fact that he could occupy both centre halves, the fact that he would press from the front for you. He was magnificent, and you know, and to fa- the fact that he was still playing until last year is testament yeah. to him, really, as to how he looked after himself and went about his whole career. Even when people were were sort of decrying him for not being a twenty goal a season man, he never was going to be. If he was going to be fifteen, then that was brilliant for Shane. But the work he did for others, and you know, when he went up to to Hull and was playing, I think it was with Yelovich and what have you, they were on hell of a a, a good bargain pair playing at Premier League level, and not least, as I say, his. His asset was his terrific enthusiasm and work rate. He was he was a great lad, fantastic person to have around a football club. I've said a few times on this pod that um, you know I uh, never never name names, but I had a number of people uh, say to me uh, that pretty much the the day after Shane had left the club that. Um, they it just went down a percent or two in training because he set he set the standards. Well, I was disappointed because obviously I was instrumental in being someone who pushed for him to come in in the first place. Because I think we had thirty odd reports on Shane, and I'd done sixteen of them, so I was like really keen for us to get him. And again, when Roy made it, and again, what Roy was really good at was giving a very clear picture of what he wanted attribute wise in his players, and he wanted someone like like Shane who would work hard to press. Uh, across that front area. I think there was Danny Graham as well he wanted us to consider, uh, which we did. But Shane was the one that obviously came in. Now, when he left, it was made quite clear to me because I, I questioned it, you know, not in a in a pompous way, because that's not my, it's above my station to make those decisions. But it was like when you just, we just signed, you know, we'd just taken Pepe Mel as manager and he wanted to play a high pressing game. Now, the squad we had really was an aging squad that had been put together along a different um sort of like way of thinking but for for Pepe to then lose the one player we had in the squad who was really capable of pressing like hell across the front was difficult for him you know so I was disappointed but I was told that it was a business decision and that's fine you you, you take that but to replace someone like him at that time was very very difficult but I mean obviously you, what we're talking about isn't just specific to one player um, but but taking that as an example, yeah, Shane was someone who, from a business point of view, would have been taken with one eye on make, making a profit on him. I mean, we'll come to the sort of what I would consider to be almost the glory years of uh, of Albion in the Premier League and our and our recruitment in a minute. But just to dwell on that point, Stu. Um, I mean, what we certainly had on uh, under Dan um, throughout you know uh, with Robbie and uh, and and with Roy and then into into Steve Clark as well was a a very clear DNA running through the club, a very clear identity of what we wanted to be and what we wanted to achieve. Now, I imagine that 
makes things much clearer for, for, for you guys in knowing that what kind of players you need to be bringing in. Because a lot of people seem to, I, in my opinion, add two and two and get five and think that um, that, that Dan leaving was the beginning of the end. I, I, I Given there's somebody who was at the club at the time, I don't see it like that. I think that the, the club around that sort of Pepe Mel time just tried to make two larger shift in the identity of the football club in too short a period of time and we suffered as a as a result of it. It would would you say that's would you say that's a fair yeah. assessment seeing it from your point of view? I would. Um how do I phrase this really? You you look back as you've alluded to, we 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 knew what we were. I think there was that phrase, wasn't there? We did Shane not actually have a, on, on a shirt on a shirt when he scored. He did, we yeah. Know what we are or something in, in in one game. Yeah. Um and we did, and, and yeah, we we always recruited to a budget. It was never a case of like saying, yeah, the recruitment department knew what that budget was, but we weren't daft. We weren't going to start suggesting players that we knew were going to cost far too much money and be unattainable. And it was a case of putting players to Dan, putting players to through him to the board, etc., for consideration. And then if the deal was doable and it was like financially it was it, it was sustainable, then efforts would be made to bring those players through and into the club. Some did, some didn't. But I think at that time, we had a certain way, as you say, we had a certain identity. A lot of it was hard work. A lot of it, especially when Roy came in, was organisation. Because I would say that when when Robbie was was manager, we actually got by and did very well because we had a very good group of players. We'd been relegated with a lot of players like James Morrison, Chris Brunt, et cetera, who'd been Jonas Olsen, who'd been Premier League players with us. And and they they really helped Robbie, I think, no end. That's not to decry, you know, what, what Robbie did, because we played some fantastic stuff at times under Robbie. You know, that season when we started and went to Arsenal and won, et cetera. And mm. yeah, we had a great time, really. But then when Roy came in, it, it shifted. And for me, as someone who'd been part-time up until the, the Robbie Di Matteo era, and yes, you're involved, but you're not properly involved, and you don't see it all uh, happening, you know, day for day. But obviously, then I was fortunate enough to to do just that. With Roy, the organisation changed. Training was methodical. It, it it was the same day in day out to the point where I think some players might have become a little bit bored with it at some point until they started to realise that the results were so good that their Premier League futures were kind of quite likely to be maintained. You can sell anything to players it. when you're winning, can't you? Of course, but I, th- but I also think Roy was clever. Mm. We're sort of going off on a tangent, and I do apologise, but Roy was clever. No, in he, I think he realised that his training was kind of like similar, if not identical, day in, day out. I remember watching two or three sessions, and he'd pull people up at the same points. He'd have everyone like in very, very um, well-organised, well-structured units of you know, 442, by and large. Um, and then there were days when he probably realised that he had to let it get a little bit more and you know a little bit more different, a, a little bit different for the players, and he let Appy take sessions, and they were a little bit quicker, a little bit different, as I say, as in, you know people people do uh, criticise Roy or have done over the years unfairly. I think he's an absolute genius, um, mm. and, and for him to still be managing now at seventy six, is he? In the Premier League is is is, is phenomenal, um, but but yeah, we did have an identity. As I say, that shifts and football evolves, clubs evolve, and our identity did shift when Roy obviously moved on with England. We were in a great position, and Steve was perhaps lucky that Steve is quite a 
defense first kind of coach. He knew what, but but I think under Royers, and you asked the question about what we were looking for as a recruitment department. Under Roy was the first time really I knew exactly what I was looking for because he spelt it out position for position, what players needed to be able to do in those positions. So you knew that even though you as a recruiter, as a scout, whatever, might have an idea of what you like as a fullback, what you like as a central midfield player, that doesn't matter. It's what the manager wants. So you then go and find those players and you might recognise the attributes that he wants in his players, in players that you theoretically might not like as much but you knew they were right for him. I remember there was there was one conversation we had um, in the you know, the big room in the middle where we used to have the meetings. Um, I don't know what it's used for now. I've not been there for a long time. But we had like the, the big round table in there and we had all the coaching staff, all the recruitment staff gathered around and we were talking about Gareth McCauley and questions were asked about him and what did we think of him? And I just... Having seen him playing for, for Ipswich, I was kind of saying, well, if he gets dragged out into the fullback area because his fullback's caught high, he'll struggle 1v1. And Roy, and Roy just said, like, with respect. And, of course, when Roy Hodgson says, with respect, <laughs> they're like, oh, God, here we go. But he just he just explained to me then, like, in my team, that won't happen. And it's like, fair enough. So, yeah, I was, a, I was put in my place, but I was also educated in the nicest way possible by someone you have to have an awful lot of respect for, that the West Brom team under Roy Hodgson was not going to see Gareth McCauley get caught out in the right-back position because the right-back's too far up the pitch. And again, I learned that day that, okay, I've got what he means. I know what I'm looking for now. And and Gareth, and in fact, I'm pretty sure it was the same day that Dan went with uh, with Roy down to like the, um, the East Anglia derby. I think they played Norwich and got hammered 5-1. I remember I think, it. I think, I think Gareth might even have scored an own goal. Yeah, yeah, he did. And um, Roy then said, like, yeah, he'll do for me. And it was like, okay. His team just got battered. But Roy obviously looked at it with, from a much more you know clinical perspective and realised that he would suit what Roy wanted. So what I'm getting at is over time, not just at centre-half or not just right-back, wherever, you knew quite prescriptively what Roy wanted in those positions. And it made my job, our job, collectively a lot easier. It makes me smile as well at that, Stu, because I have to say, I don't think there's anyone in the world that has chewed me out as many times as Roy has that I have as much love for who is not a relative. I don't think I'd tolerate it from anybody else, but it's just the guy just commanded such a phenomenal level of respect. And as you say, Ricky won't mind me saying this, but we we had a bit of an exchange on Twitter, me, me and me and a young gentleman who uh, who actually makes a lot of very salient points. But he he basically, when Roy got reappointed as Palace manager, said it was an absolute disaster of an appointment. And I just said to him, I said, they will win games. They will win games. The man is a genius. They will win games. And to be fair to Ricky, he held his hands up at the end of the season and said, I got that one bang wrong. Um, I, the man's a genius, isn't he? 100% in terms of how he organises teams. And he's, he's perhaps, and again, this, who am I to say? Because Rory's obviously been at the highest, highest end of football. But some, I think some managers suit certain clubs. And maybe his spell at Liverpool, maybe that wasn't a fit. I don't know. But certainly for us at the time, it was a perfect fit. Yeah, I think I think we suited him to rebuild. And again, who's to say that Roy Hodgson has a, had a poor reputation? But I think at that time, we we fitted him, and he certainly fitted us. 
It, well, so, it only it takes one job as a manager, doesn't it? I I think uh, you know when you say poor reputation, it's no, it, 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 you know what I mean. I'm trying. Yeah, it, it's only taking a knock. Yeah, exactly. That, but that's what I mean, Stu. You're absolutely right. Th- th- three games, five games is all it takes as a manager to get a bad rep in football. That's just the stupid nature of football, really, to a certain degree. It is where he's concerned because he's he's brilliant, and I think, and again, I. When he left, he sat us all down individually. You know, he brought us into his his office. It wasn't like a we had a little bit of a party. If you remember that on that day, we had like a bit bit of a celebration. He was moving on to manage England for goodness sake. And um, but quite apart from that, we he actually brought us into his office one at a time for half an hour each over a period of time over a number of days. And I remember saying to him, like, I've learned more from him in that sort of eighteen month period. It wasn't even that, was it? Um, less than that. Yeah. But I learned more from him in that relatively short period of time than I had in any point in my career up to date, cumulatively. He was he was fantastic to work for. And yeah, you know, there were there were some days when you you sort of like were a little bit if you hadn't had a great result or if players that you'd been involved with bringing in were not performing or whatever. And I remember we actually Spiro, Spiro and I were sort of listening into a, a conversation he was having with us. And he was like kind of like talking down players. I remember Spiro saying that he could feel himself sliding down the sofa. Sort of thing, like feeling as oh my god, these are players we brought in, and he's actually being quite critical. But then within within minutes, he was actually talking the same players' qualities up. Now whether that was him getting into the psyche of of us as scouts to sort of think you need to get better players for me, but at the same time, actually the players you brought in, given the budgets you've had, have been pretty good. So again, is that part of his genius in terms of managing us man for man? I don't know, but I absolutely love the fella. I love my time working for him. And again, the fact that he brought us into his office one by one and we made it quite clear that if 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 we needed to call him for whatever reason we could, it's like, I'm not going to call you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be pestering the England manager for anything. You know what I mean? It's not my place to do that. But, but I have nothing but adoration for the man. I think he's brilliant. Yeah, as 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 do as do I, and and as you say, that kind of that personal touch is something that that always gets underrated with with Roy. But I mean, I I, I remember when when I went over to the FA, and the first day that I I just bumped into Roy in the corridor, and as as you as you know, when I was at West Brom, my my housemate was uh, was Johnny Gibson, who was um who at the time was performance analyst, um and uh, and uh, and. Roy just came up to me in 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 the corridor. How are you, Chris? By by the way, have you spoke to Johnny recently? How are his kid? How's his kid? Um, all this sort of thing, and you think you're the England manager, and you're remembering somebody that you worked with three years ago. You're remembering that he was my housemate, and therefore I must still be in contact yeah. with him. Oh, and you great. just what you know, just think what what a guy. Sorry, hugely so. A similar story to that, and again, this could go on for hours, couldn't it? But I. Because I lived not too far from Manchester and because I, you know, we were in the Premier League at the time, Roy had left and there was the Manchester derby on a Sunday afternoon and I went to the game and it was the same time as uh, Tom Cruise was over here shooting, was it Mission Impossible or whatever, he was shooting at the time yeah. and he went to the game and we we're all outside and like, the, the, the security guy stopped us plebs from getting in because Tom Cruise was arriving. Of course, he pulls up the car, he gets out. We could barely see him sort of thing, but we knew he was there, just screaming people, this, that, and the other. And who scuttles past my right shoulder but Roy Hodgson? And I think he's kind of like taken the chance as England manager to sort of sneak around the side while all the attention was on Tom Cruise. And I'm, and I, he goes past, and I think I've got to say hello. So I just shouted, Gaffer. No, I, beg, no, I didn't. I shouted Roy several times. 
No response. I then shouted, Gaffer. He turned around, came over and had 10 minutes. Wow. Which he didn't have to do because obviously I think he was kind of scuttling in, trying to get in. Yeah, under the radar. When the attention was elsewhere. But when he realized it was someone who would work for him, he came over and quite freely gave me five or 10 minutes of a conversation. Just how I, it was the day we just lost at Arsenal the day before when there was it, Cazola. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, so it was it was that weekend, I'm sure it was. Um, but no, he just came over and had a chat. I mean, what an individual, what what a fantastic man. And again, he gets he gets derided sometimes. I think it it was, and I think, I think the manager he did, but he was the perfect person for that job at that time because there was all, to, all sorts of talk about other candidates that I think might not have gone, might, might not have been the right individual for England at that point. And I think Roy certainly was. But, you know, again, going back to what you've asked about recruitment-wise, um, we knew as a department exactly what we were looking for. And he made it simple on, for us on, to go and find those players. On that, Stu, I mean, we, we've talked a few times on on this pod that, you know, we, we've we've debated, and obviously I'm not asking for your opinion on this because it goes beyond your time at, at, the, at the Albion, but that, that, um, that too much power has been given to the managers in terms of recruitment. And I'm just wondering, as I talk to you here, whether we phrase that incorrectly, where, whereas I, it's possible that we haven't given too much power to the managers. We just haven't had a clear enough identity of the type of manager that we want. When you look at the managers we've gone through, that uh, uh, you know, Pulis to Pardew, so different. Then to um, th- th- then to Darren, a bit different to that. Then to Bilic, different. Then complete change to Val- uh, to Sam Allardyce, and then into Valerian Ishmael, and then uh, to Carlos Corbran. Now, how is it? I, 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 you know, I'm questioning the some of the rhetoric that we've come out with on this very pod, and thinking mm. that it might not be the, the the power that the managers have had in recruitment, that we, but rather the club's total lack of identity and the type of manager they've wanted um, is is more more a problem. And I'm asking you that more broadly, not specifically to West Brom, because I appreciate that you know that. No, like I, I say, can understand what you're getting at. I really can because yeah, obviously we we'd had Robbie, we then needed a Roy Hodgson. Um, Steve Clark was the, the perfect next evolution, if you like. And it was, certainly wasn't revolution. Steve wanted to play 4-2-3-1 rather than the, the 4-4-2 that Roy favoured. But we had players in that group who could do that. We had James Morrison. We had maybe even Graham Dorrance who could slide into a 10 position. Although Graham didn't always get on the half turn quite so quick. But we but we had good footballers and we could go and maybe recruit players who would would, would be of a similar level. But... I think what got me at the time when I was still at West Brom was the shift from Steve to Pepe Mel because that just didn't, to me, that that didn't marry up. It wasn't a West Bromwich Albion um, progression for me. I think we were trying to, and I understand that sometimes a, an owner or a football club, sometimes led a little bit by the opinions of the supporters, might want to become a more flair-based, flamboyant, sort of attacking football side. And I think maybe that the... the, the the outlook towards maybe bringing Pepe in, who was a lovely fellow, by the way, and you must have had your times chatting with him and what have you. Loved him. Loved I don't him. think that fit him. It's, it's very easy to say, isn't it, with hindsight. But when you look at the job that Dean Kiley and Keith Downing did in trying to help Pepe, try to sort of like steady it and bring us round to stay in that division that season, they were massive for that, for, for that club in that three, four-month period because they, they knew that we didn't need to panic, just needed to get it right in terms of playing a, a certain way again. Because at the start of the season, we'd been really good. The previous year had been outstanding. 
the start of the season, yeah, we brought in the likes of Morgan Amalfitano, who, who faded, to be fair. But at the, at the start of the season, he was he was like a house on fire. He was fantastic. I, I always I always remember um, when uh, Gareth McCauley got asked about him after a game. I, it was it was it was one of the ones at the Hawthorns where he scored a brilliant goal, and they they asked him about him, and he uh, and he said because um, it was it Marseille we got him from. Yes, uh, he, he, Gareth. Uh, they said, "What do you think of Morgan Amalfitano?" He said, "Let me put it this way: whoever's playing right midfield for Marseille must be one hell of a player." Yeah, he's a good player. I mean, I went to, I actually went to watch Kevin Gamero. If you remember him, I went to watch. Uh, I think it was Lorient against Grenoble, and in fact, uh, Bostian Cesar was playing in that game and scored an own goal. Uh, strange. It was the day we beat Sheffield Wednesday. It's a, it's a bit of a running theme here with centre halves. You've signed for us, uh, Stu. <laughs> Scoring own goals. No, but scoring own goals when 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 you go when Albion scouts go to watch them and then we sign oh, them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Got you now. Sorry, yeah, but no, that Boston obviously had been and gone at that point. But I went to watch Kevin Gamero, and um, it was a day we we'd hammered Sheffield Wednesday like four or five away from home when Coxy got one or two, and hmm. we absolutely mullered them. And um, it was I remember it was throwing it down with rain. Absolutely pouring down in Lorient, but obviously I'm skipping because we just we just had a massive win away from home. It was brilliant. And that night, this there was this right side of midfield player, Morgan Amalfitano. And I'm just like really like him. You know, what a good footballer. Even on a on a really, really wet pitch, it was slick, which probably helped him a little bit, but he was covering ground so effortlessly. And when the chance came for us to take him, I was personally happy to say on what not just because you don't just go off one game. You end up watching more and more. When the chance came, obviously you refresh yourselves by using Y Scout, by using as we did at the time. We had countless DVDs of players in the Shrine, as we called it, in the Shire, I beg your pardon, as we called it. And um, yeah, we did a lot of work on him in a short period of time, as we did with others. And in he came. And I, I just remember Dean Kylie coming into the room one time and putting on, on the board something like um, Je t'aime or something in French, obviously, strangely, on this board about him. Because he had so much ability, but I think as a character, he was a little bit flawed. Mm. But you don't necessarily know that until they're in the building. And then you think, well, is that why he was available? Is that because he didn't quite have the right sort of like group mentality? But listen, I'll never forget the goal at Old Trafford because that was like, yeah, me me being um, not the biggest fan of Man United, that was um, that was certainly a sweet day. Did 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 we almost get a little bit unlucky with with that? Because as you say, that these are things you can't necessarily know until they're in the building. But we we seem to have a few characters who who were a little bit like that all around the same sort of time. You had Morgan, you had uh, you had you had Nicholas, of course. Sido had, uh, had got got into the uh, got into the team uh, around that uh, around that time. Cess as well was there, you know, and all all phenomenal players. In, yeah. in, on on their on their day, but um, I mean, and I, I, Cess in particular, I actually had a really really good relationship with very nice fella who I liked a lot. But um, but but they, if they you caught them on the wrong day, you really did catch them on the wrong day, didn't you? Listen, maybe we did. I don't know. I think because at the time we obviously had a reputation for it as well, for good or for bad, that we brought in a lot of players from different countries, different nationalities. I think there was a time we had something like seventeen different nationalities or something ridiculous in the squad. Now. Over time, it served us pretty well, um, but I think I think you don't necessarily know, and I think every effort is made these days, certainly more than even even it was at that time, to try and do a little bit more background work. It's not just a case of like your manager phoning another manager and saying what's he like? Oh, he's a great lad, in he comes. Mm. 
it's not it's not it's not as simple as that you have to do an awful lot of work yourself and these days you we did a lot of work i think even at west brom and certainly at whole city we do a lot of work in terms of like looking at social media looking at their use of social media to find out what sort of characters they are we've actually at hull we actually had an interest in one player and scrutinized a little bit his social media contributions and ruled him out based on that so it, it it does have a have an effect, but I think at that time you look at the squad we had. Maybe there were one or two players who who character wise were a little bit less than the perfect examples that we'd had in previous years with the solid citizens that we'd built up. You know, and I think I think when certain players came in, I I having been around the club and had the club massively at heart, the one or two came in. I'm like they're not West Brom players for me. You'd mentioned one already, but I don't really want to mention them again, sort of thing. But it's kind of like you get that feeling that they don't fit. They're not going to be right for us. And that's yeah. only a, a gut feeling that you have. They certainly weren't a Jonas Olsen or a Gareth McCauley. Do you know what I mean? Or a Billy yeah. Jones or, or a Graham Dorans, even a Claudio Jacob. You know, obviously oh. Claudio coming from the other side of the world, but he fitted in straight away. Gonzalo, Chiara, fantastic. When he came in the building, he was like hard as nails, by the way. Oh. But, but But what a player. And it's just a shame that he was it against Reading in the cup that he got did he break a toe or whatever against Reading and then you know he never really recovered his form for us did he but he was actually better on the international stage than he was playing his club football in this country at that time but but we had good characters we really did and I think one or two of the ones that came in latterly maybe were a little bit suspect when you look back maybe they were a little bit suspect and it, it didn't really help us but even then we managed to stay in the Premier League so that was still you know massively. Down to again, I've I've alluded to it, but Keith and Keith and Dean were, were hugely important at that point. They really were because they knew the league. It's that's no slight on Pepe. I just don't think he he knew the league as well as those guys did, and they were managed. You know, they managed to rally around and help him massively. I have to say as well, Gonzo, that one of the most savage red cards I've ever seen. That two-footed oh. challenge at Blackpool, <laughs> but, yeah, but the most unnecessary <laughs> thing as well. The guys in the, by the corner flag and Gonzo's yeah, just. Yeah, yeah. Gone I in, losing, didn't we? Was it three two? Was it? Yeah, even... we we with nine men, we came back from three nil yeah. down to three two, and then I think it was Yusuf had a chance right towards the end to make yeah. it three three, and we yeah. so easily could have walked out of there with with a draw that night as uh, as well with with nine men. Incredible, uh, it, Stu. Just it, like let's let's talk about you know the golden years as it were, because it, it went you yeah. coming on full time. In in two thousand and nine, I'm sure this is not a coincidence. Uh, coincided with Dan really b- beefing up the, the the recruitment area of the football club, and you know he, he was he was he was really really getting his his feet under the table in terms of that uh, sporting director role. What was it? Because that period through Robbie into Roy. And then, as you say, into that first season of Steve Clark, is probably is probably the most successful recruitment the club has ever done. I I, I would go as far as to to in terms of in the modern era, in terms of in terms of modern scouting. I'm not going to talk about the 70s and Laurie Cunningham and people like that. Of course, they were an unbelievable signing, Cyril Regis. But in the modern era, where players are globally known and it is a global thing that's probably the most successful recruitment we have ever done what made that period so so successful well, that's a big big question because there were so many different facets to what we did and again I, I've been part-time for nine years under Gary Megson under 
Brian Robson, etc., and Tony Mowbray. It was Tony kind of, I think, had quite an influence in 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 making me, you know, head of UK recruitment as it was entitled at the time. Obviously, Dan too. But I think it all came together at the right sort of time. I think politically, Dan was brilliant uh, and is brilliant, as has been sort of like improved um, by his, his his career since. Um, but I think he put people around him who who were. A hundred percent together, we were such a strong unit as a team of people. Obviously, we had Bobby, bless him. I mean, Bobby. The reason why I got the job was Bobby wanted to or had to step back because Carol, his, his, his wife, needed a, a transplant, liver transplant, I think it was. Um, and so, at any given point, he couldn't be any more than two hours away from taking her to hospital, so he couldn't be around the country anymore. But Bobby, and hope for that, anybody that, who's wondering, just just to be clear. Beg your pardon. Uh, just Sorry? saying, but Bobby Hope for anybody who's wondering. Because... Yeah, Bobby, obviously brilliant. I mean, what a man. And but then Bobby was still key to I think Dan's setup because he had the experience, he had everyone's respect, and then some. And he was a massive help to me. Dan actually made it quite clear to me that in making the appointment, make, you know, bringing me in full time, he wanted to keep Bobby as someone who could help me along, help me to settle because I knew him, but also a very sage um, individual who, who, who could give proper, proper advice and guidance really to someone who was very, very keen. I mean, I was 39, 40 years of age or whatever, but I was still really wet behind the ears because I had never been full-time before. But when the, op- you know, when the offer came to me, I, I took a quite a substantial drop in salary to come and do it because I wanted to do it. Um, and I don't regret for one minute having done that. I have loved every minute of, my time in football, but specifically as we talked about West Brom, I had a great time at West Brom with brilliant people. And again, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, but Dan brought together a group of people who would have, we all had each other's backs because, and I can't tell you how important that is because um, only when you're in it, do you realize um, that sometimes, you know, people are not all for the club. They're often for themselves and their own careers and they'll jump over whoever they want to jump over to get somewhere bigger and better. Now we didn't. We weren't like that. I can say that hand on heart. We had a group of people with Bobby at the head of it, if you want to call it that, as an older individual. He was only maybe working two two days a week. He wasn't in the club every day. He'd only go to a game maybe a Tuesday, certainly a Saturday, and it was always around the Midlands that he would he, he would go to those games. He would never really go out further afield for obvious reasons. But very soon after I joined, Carol had the transplant, and obviously she was thankfully a lot better very quickly. Um. But we had such a, a, a close-knit group of people. Spiro, honestly, the miles that he must have flown, the miles that he must have driven abroad, the effort he put into to doing his job in Europe and further afield. I know one or two Spiro's about, uh, stories about wild goose chases that we've all been on. It happens in scouting, but Spiro once went to Argentina to watch a player for two minutes at the end of a game and came home. It was ridiculous. Um, but we all pulled for each other. We all had the the... the the good of the club at heart, every single one of us. And I think Dan could trust us. Mm. And if we ever made recommendations, Dan would listen. He didn't always agree, and that's fine, because people don't. But we we had such a good group of people, and I think that was massively important, because trust is huge in football. Within the four walls of the recruitment department, I would say, and again, I would say this, because it's part of what I do, but I think it's a massively important cog in the wheel. And if you haven't got that trust and you don't back each other, you're in trouble. So I've seen both sides of it in my in my 15 years of being full-time. But that group of people, Spiro, 
Bobby, myself, Johnny, Jeff, we we had a good, good group of people working together. Lee Darmber, obviously. Lee was more technical rather than going out to games as much. But we all trusted each other and we all pulled for each other and we all backed each other. And it was brilliant. And Dan obviously was sitting at the head of that. And I think Dan would actually suggest that the reason why he was so successful was that he had people underneath him who he could trust to do the job properly. And not just go about it diligently, but actually be able to find the players that would that would make us better. And there are a lot of players that people who may be listening wouldn't know. There are a lot of players that we wanted to move for that we were perhaps ahead of the game in, in, in identifying, but we couldn't get them over the line. We couldn't quite do the deals for whatever reason. Some of them maybe didn't go on to do great things, but some of them, by the way, did go on to do extremely well in this country in some cases. But we couldn't quite get them over the line because we weren't quite in that ballpark. Now, we weren't massively short in terms of where we could go to financially, but sometimes we couldn't quite make them happen. I remember, I think, prior to you know starting the the broadcast sort of thing, we mentioned Okazaki. Now, he he was one, but Mainz wouldn't sell until the following year. So we missed him. Now, I remember going to watch him at Nuremberg and he scored. He was a one-all draw on a freezing cold night. Um, unbelievably cold. And absolutely sold on him, but we couldn't quite do it. You know, we, and that's just one example of someone who came into this country and was an absolute boon sort of thing for Leicester. So we had a group, group of people who could identify the right players, the right type of player, uh, but we couldn't always do the deal. But that's not something that you ever held a grudge against the powers that be at a football club for, because you knew that it was a case of, right, that one didn't come, who's the next one? You just keep going and keep going. You have to have more than one or two options. You always have to have three or four more than that and you know it's um we had a good group and it's it's a it's an undefinable answer really in terms of what i can give you but everything about what we did it was it was methodical to a point but you always get as we've had this summer players do come in left left of you know from 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 left field as as attainable options and sometimes it's like that one's realistic well yes let's do it you might not have thought it was realistic like six months, 12 months ago, but suddenly something happens, something shifts and a player is offered to you. Now we had to have that awareness of those players. And we did, by the way, we, we did an awful lot of work. It wasn't just what you see live scouting wise. We would sit in the Shire and you probably remember this. We we would disappear in the shower in, in, in the Shire for hours. Mm. What's player after player. Sometimes we were watching four or five back to back in that darkened room. But it was it was invaluable, but and and the fact that we I think at that time, and again this is prior to my joining, really I think it was Lee who'd set it up, obviously in conjunction with Dan, um, <clears throat> the system of like having access to whatever games across the world were on TV at any given time on any given channel that we might be able to subscribe to. We did prior to Y Scout, mm. and we would have I don't know how many DVDs we must have had in that room. Goodness knows how many. And there were full games, there were edited games, there were all sorts in there. And again, we would sit and watch. And um, yeah, it was... Uh... Well, that was that, that was kind of how Jonas Olsen came about, wasn't it? Because I, I think uh, I think I'm right, right in saying that Jonas he'll Olsen was discovered me. whilst watching a different player. Yeah, well, he'll know better than me. I wasn't full-time at that point. Jonas came in under, under Tony, didn't mm. he? So that was prior to my, my joining the club full-time. And I'm not privy to how everyone went about it in those days. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that you end up, you know, perhaps watching a certain player in a certain game and you get taken by somebody else. It happens all the time. Yeah. Um, so that's so, so that's not a, a great shock, but um 
but no, listen, I think you know that the Shire was. I think we were as a club. I think that made us a little bit kind of like cutting edge. Mm-hmm. We were a little bit ahead of the game. Now clubs have caught up and gone past maybe where West Brom are, where even we are at Hull City. And I think we do a pretty good job in terms of how we go about it now. I would say that, but I do believe that. Um, it doesn't always see the players you like come to fruition, but that's down to other other, other um, elements. But I think at that time, West Brom were ahead of the game. And Dan, again, and, and, and Lee, you should take huge credit for that. But my job, as it is now, is an absolute pleasure. I, I, had, the, I had a great job. And... I was given a number of scouts that were already employed by the club across the country, if you like. I knew one or two of them because we used to have get-togethers through the season every now and again, mainly at the end of the season or the start of the season, where you get to know everybody. And honestly, when we brought play, I mean, you, you, you'd have been there yourself on certain Fridays when everyone flew in from different countries to have get-togethers. We'd have 20-odd scouts there. We'd have all the domestic, all the lads from Germany, Spain, France, Belgium, Holland, wherever they lived, all came in. We had a great setup. Um, even even we had one guy in Argentina who, who um, was it Martin Paredes, I think his name was, that Spiro brought in. I remember him. He was the centre half, wasn't he? I couldn't tell you, but he but he worked. And then he moved to Spain, I think, actually. But anyway, um, we had some real good people, and and it was like honestly those Fridays when we brought guys over and we had like get-togethers that were massively important for you know for for team bonding, and obviously we would then. Spiro ostensibly would travel out, obviously, into Europe, and he'd, he'd sometimes meet those guys. He'd stay at their houses. If he was in one guy, Derek Bevan, lived in Alicante, he'd go and stay with him for a couple of days and go and watch games in that region. And they were invaluable. Like People had their ears to the ground in those countries and would yeah. feedback about, oh, there might be a chance of getting this player out of this club. Honestly, we, but again, things have moved on from there now. But at that time, I think we were pretty much ahead of the game. Well, not not just in terms of what you what you did, Stu, but I mean, and it, I suppose we keep coming back and back to this uh, this DNA, this club ethos thing. But uh, I mean, as as a guy who was twenty six at the at that time, two thousand and nine, when you joined uh, joined full time, you know, I was I was young, wet behind the ears, and I'm I'm not shy to say a little bit arrogant as well at the, at, at times. Um, and uh, you know, uh, but and some uh, some. At some clubs, I'm sure, if I'd walked into the recruitment room or whatever, I'd have been told to turn tail and get out. And I, I, I always thought that the recruitment team were very much saw the club as one big entity where everybody was doing it was it was an equal cog in the overall wheel and. I thought you guys, as you say, you you described it there. You complemented each other well. You you had your own sort of specialist areas where you where you were very good. But I thought as well, and this was probably true of everything around the training ground um, uh, around that time, from the youth academies um, to uh, even even over to the the, the guys at the canteen uh, and the chefs who were who were amazing and, uh, and like you know like uh, uh, Zolly would go uh, away with um, uh, with Hungary and come back and he always come back with this spicy Hungarian sausage um, and the and the chef would uh, the, the chef would turn it into a goulash type thing for for everybody in in the training ground to eat and it's just it was just stuff like that around that that sort of time and and the recruitment team being so welcoming was a part of that that it was uh, uh, going to be cliched here but um it, it was a family club 
at that time. That that was that was what I worked at. Again, I I have no experience of how the club was pre Dan. You know, obviously a little bit with Simon Simon Hunt because he he um, I think thanks to Bobby maybe he had to make one or two decisions to keep people or let people go on a part time front. And I was one of the few, thankfully, who got retained. I think that might have been Bobby's influence, to be fair. But obviously, I've got to know Simon relatively well over years since then. But I didn't know how he worked at that time, really, over and above those, as I say, those get-togethers. Um, but at that point, we only really had the UK guys. But no, I think from my experience of working with Dan, you've got to give Dan, obviously, everyone knows this, but give him huge credit for the way he pulled that club together organisationally. And we did have the identity. I think it was kind of like everyone knew what we were, as you say, in terms of not getting too big for our boots. I think this is going to sound awful. I've got to be careful. I think some supporters perhaps wanted to get ahead of themselves mm. as to like saying pushing for Europe. And yeah, especially after we finished eighth that year. Yeah. What, which, what, what's known as Charlton Athletic Syndrome in the, well, to the Kirbishly years. Yeah. I, I used to be a little bit too vocal and I learned my lesson, but I used to be a little bit too vocal on social media in sticking up for us and sticking up for the club. You will make mistakes. I've made mistakes. We've all made mistakes. There's not one scout, not one heavy recruitment or whatever, who who can honestly, hand on heart, say they've never made a mistake. We've, we all have. Every one of us. But as long as you're getting 78% right, you're okay. But I look, I look back at it, and you know, Dan did a, such a wonderful job of bringing good people together. And as you say, it was a family club. You can talk about Jill. You can talk about Gene. Mm. You can talk about Phil. Kingston, you can tell about all these different people, and we were a family. We definitely were. We had we got on with each other. There wasn't one individual that wasn't good to work with. Yeah. It was a fantastic place. You know, obviously yourself, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe that's just a, yeah. <laughs> but no, honestly, yeah. I, I was the exception that proved the rules. No, listen, <laughs> not at all. Everyone had different facets to themselves. But you know, Simo, what a great group of people we had. Yeah, it was a ple- every day was a pleasure. And I've said this many times to Lee to others. Even the bad days were good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, I mean, look, uh, can only speak as you find. I, I don't stay somewhere eight years if 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 I don't think it's phenomenal. And 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 sim- similar with similar with you. You know, um... I think, I think sorry to interrupt you. I think with you, you're a fan anyway, mm. so you probably feel a love for the club in the first place that would probably keep you there even if things weren't great. Some people who are working as you know that's their job as opposed to their passion, yeah. their innate football supporting passion. It became mine. I'm a Stockport County supporter. I always will be, but I'm a West Brom fan as well yeah. because my time at that football club was was immense. I loved every second of it. I did not want to leave. I didn't. I was lucky that I had a job to go to the very next day. I'd been offered something, obviously, at Burnley, and I had two fabulous years at Burnley. But West Brom will forever be different, will forever be special because that was just... And again, you only get an appreciation for it when you look back having had different experiences. Yeah, that club through that period was, I think, just exactly the way you needed to run a football club with regard to the personalities at play. And then I've, I kind of touched on it a second ago. I think some supporters, and it's no criticism because you've got to be ambitious, you've got to want bigger and better things every time. You, otherwise, what's the point? Mm. I think when we finished eighth that season, which to my mind was top of our league, yes. We, we were never going to be above Man United, Everton, Liverpool, at the time Everton, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, whoever. We were never Chelsea. We were never going to be above them. But for us to finish top of the other 12 or 13 or whatever, yeah, that was bloody good. Yeah, that, I think I think Steve said that at the end of the season, didn't he? Did he? I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And I, 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 I totally agree. Uh, you touched on 
Okazaki there, Stu. Um, let, let let me ask you then: is 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 that the 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 one that, uh, where you look back on and think, oh, if we could have got that one over the over the line, or was that was, was there maybe a, maybe another one? I know, I think this is post your years, but Darren what? Fletcher brought up Virgil Van Dyke and said he was recommended at at, at one point. Uh, is there somebody that stands out for you? You not know the story? Go on. Okay. Uh, Abameyang was the one from my perspective that we missed out on. Um, it's very easy. Again, it's easy to say after the event, but, and again, my experiences go back to who we were playing at that time. I went to watch a centre forward playing for, who was it now? France League Two. Uh, his name was Sebastian Ribas anyway. He was a, a South American centre forward playing in France and he was like ripping it up in League Two. Where was he playing? It'll come back to me in the middle of the conversation anyway. I've been to see him on a Friday night and I wasn't particularly impressed on that particular week. On, on that, But so I was then, okay, taking a game the next day in France while you're there. So my journey home was obviously to go to France, uh, to, to go to Charles de Gaulle. On the way home was um, Auxerre. On the way to the airport, rather, was Auxerre. And they were playing Saint-Étienne on the Saturday night. I'd been sweating all afternoon on us playing at Sunderland. We won 3-2. I think Yusuf scored. I think Paul Sharna scored. Oh yeah, yeah, away, yes. Yeah, Phil Barzi yeah. scored like an absolute pile driver for them to equalise. But we ended yeah. up game three two. It was that Saturday, and again, all my memories go back to who we were playing on a given day. Um, and that evening, I went. To, I'm skipping into Oxford. We've just won three two away at Sunderland. Fantastic. I'm really, you know, obviously, in a good mood. And I'm watching, you know, a, what was a brilliant game of football at Oxford two two. I think it was. But playing for Saint Etienne, you had like you had Payet. You had Blaise Matweedy, and you had two up front, which were Emmanuel Riviere and um, Abameyang up front. And Abameyang at the time was on loan from Milan. And I got a phone call. I didn't make the contact. I got a phone call from an agent who I've got to know over the years, actually. He he recommended one or two other players to us. But saying, like, Abameyang, I don't know whether these guys kind of, like, are at the game and see the list of scouts and which clubs Mm. they're representing. And whether they'd seen that West Brom were there and made contact with, found out my detail because I was the person in question. But I got a phone call within a week, two weeks or whatever from this particular agent saying like, Abameyang, would you, did you, and again, he played well, obviously. I think he scored. I think he and Riviere both scored that night. I think it was a two-all draw. And um, I was, and I, I, I'd flown back on the Sunday. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place with this story. I'd flown back on the Sunday morning. My girlfriend had then picked me up at Manchester, brought me home, and then she drove me to Villa. Villa played Newcastle on the Sunday. So I've come home and driven down to watch Villa play Newcastle and Roy was there. And I just said to Roy, have you heard of um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang at um, Saint-Étienne? I no. But we also had uh, one of our scouts from France was a, a leading coach. He ended up working for Le Mans, Le Mans should I say. Um, and he brought a number of coaches over to be educated a little bit and view how we, on the coaching side of things, did things at West Brom. He was there, and I was asking him about him. He knew a little bit more about him than, than you know, obviously, certainly Roy did. But we talked about it, and I just, on the, the Monday, I went in to, to Dan and said, listen, I've seen a centre-forward. He's on loan from Milan. This is the Monday, I beg your pardon, after the agent had contacted mm-hmm. me to say, would you be interested? Now, the deal was affordable at that time to take him on loan with a with a, a per, um, an option to purchase at the end of it. And I'm like, listen, I've only seen him once. I can't really sort of like stick my hat on him and say, definitely we must take him. But I liked him on that day. And so Dan, to be fair, he went to watch him. 
Dan got on a plane like within a couple of weeks or whatever and went to watch him. He went to watch him play, I think it was at Mets. And playing for, I think, I'm sure it was Mets, was uh, playing for them was um, Brownie Day. And so you had Aubameyang in one team and a day in the other. And Aubameyang scored. I'm watching it. In, this is in the days of blinking teletext or whatever. I was watching it. I, I might have been on my laptop. I might have been watching it on on, on teletext, as I say. And it flashes up. 1-0 Sinceti. And Aubameyang scored. I'm like, good. Job done. It's kind of, you know, whether he plays well or not, at least he's contributed to the game to give Dan something to think about. Anyway, to cut a long story short, Brown scored two that night. And they won. You know, Brown's team, I think it was Mets, won 2-1. I had a conversation with Dan and like, what do you think? And Dan wasn't wasn't 100% sure. And again, you sometimes can't make your mind up on one game, one performance. And maybe he didn't play particularly well on the night. But Dan was kind of like saying, yeah, maybe if we were a championship, I'd definitely take him. But Premier League, I'm not as convinced. And that one kind of like died a death. So you're talking about players who you think might have been good for you. Mm. On, I'm, I'm going to sort of like say a but on this one because we hadn't, we didn't do enough work to say that we were 100% convinced yes. and we should have taken him. But the deal, by West Brom budget standards at that time, the deal was affordable. Um, and obviously he went on to, I think he went back to Sintetien the following season. Yeah. Rather than going anywhere else, obviously did well, and then poof, go straight through yeah. Dortmund, Dortmund so, and that, yeah. And so we missed him, but it, it, but I'm I'm qualifying that saying we didn't actually go for him. It wasn't something that we actually pushed for because we hadn't sort of like liked him consistently enough over a period of time. And I only saw him in one game, but it was a, a good performance on a on a. And honestly, that game you sometimes go to games where they wash over you. That game with those individuals playing in it, as I say, Payet. Plays Matuidi, those two up front. It was a pleasure to be there. It was a brilliant game of football. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Away days are great. There's nothing quite like playing at home, especially with Albion's home record under Carlos Corbran. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. You bet you mentioned there about um you know we we didn't we didn't quite get as far as the, uh, as the point of actually missing out on him uh, and that kind of it just made me think of the, the sort of constant newspaper or Twitter X, as it's called now, headlines that you get all the time uh, the, these days, Stu. How irritating is it when when you see either back in your Albion days or your Burnley days or nowadays at Hull that your club has, quote, missed out on a player and, and you're like, it never got anywhere near that far? Yeah. I, think, I think it happened. I mean, sometimes as players... You'll be aware from your time in the media set up at the club anyway. How many players get linked in a summer? 40, 50 players get linked with your club every summer. And I would say that a good 70% of those are never part of the mix. It's agents floating it mm -hmm. to see what the pickup is and to make other clubs take notice of the fact they've been linked with you. 
So, and again, I was asked to talk at one or two um, agent sort of education um, programs in the past about the scout recruitment department agent relationship. And I remember I've started my conversation with them saying, you, you, you're behind the black ball already because none of us trust any of you. That's where they've got to start. So when you see things in the press, I'm dubious. And sometimes you you might you might have taken a call about about player X on a Monday, and by the Wednesday it's in the press that that player is interesting your club. Well, it's just not true. But you've had a conversation about the player, whether you know the player or not, and within two days it's in the press in the on various websites and the typical, you know, the ones is it something seventy two whatever. Yeah. The FL ones or what have you that, that run these 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 rumors, confected rumors, and and there's nothing to the vast majority of them. And sometimes you think, I know the agents put that in, I know who the agent was that spoke to me. So I'm assuming it was that guy who put it in. Now, sometimes players have multiple agents. So you don't know. And I would never point a finger at people to say, you've put that in there, pack it in, sort of thing. I would never do that because I don't know if it's true or not, because there are multiple people that play. But no, it, it it is frustrating. And sometimes, as you say, it's frustrating to say you, you've missed out on. Sometimes you might have a liking for a player, but you you find out what the financial situation is and you know you're nowhere near it. Now, that can change. The, the, the nearer you get to the end of a window, players can suddenly become affordable because they haven't got the move they might have wanted in the first place. And suddenly, be it West Brom, be it Burnley at the time, because we didn't have huge amounts of money at Burnley to get promoted with. And certainly, you know, at Hull, we haven't had until maybe recently a realistic budget to be competitive. Um, and you know it's um, it's a load of puppycock sometimes that you know that you've that you've missed out as you say you you haven't sometimes you made a decision not to be interested even whether you yeah. whether you're in the ballpark or not you might not on a football basis actually like the player. You mentioned we've talked about Abamyang and Okazaki the ones we didn't get. Who is the one or the ones that you you pushed and are so so delighted that got over the line for for Albion the ones that 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 really vindicated you putting your stamp on them because as you say you can't get them all right Stu nobody can but 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 uh, I I imagine part of being a uh, being a scout and being in a recruitment department is putting your neck on the line an awful lot of the time and saying I really believe in this player and 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 every now and then somebody's got to really vindicate you you know, putting your neck on the line for them. Who, who are the ones at Albion that that really did that for you? That you said, I for think me, we should go for them, and they 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 backed you up. For me personally, or for us as a recruitment department. I I mean, it, it may maybe 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 one of each. Though, what one for you personally, and then one one for the wider wider department. Well, there are two really, and going back, Craig Dawson. Given that he was the one I'd seen him playing for Rochdale, this was this was actually like the perfect scouting um, progression. We had a guy, uh, well, he works for us now at Hull, um, Colin Moss, who lives in Cheshire, uh, Middlewich, who had seen Craig playing for Rochdale in a preseason game, and had shouted him up. Okay, from 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 out of nowhere, he was the first person to say this lad is worth a look. So, what's the point of having scouts if you don't follow up on what they recommend? So I obviously went to watch him. I remember going to watch him one particular afternoon at, at Lincoln. They won 3-1, I think, um, at Lincoln. And Craig, he scored with a header, typical Craig Dawson header from a corner. But not just that, the way he'd attacked the ball, the way he was like rugged, 
and he was still very raw at that stage, coming from from you know Rochdale as he uh, as he was playing for at the time. But I just remember speaking to Bobby uh, about him and saying, "Listen, he's a throwback. He's, he's old school. He's a, like a dog with a bone." It, but and I, for what we had budget wise, and we had the luxury at that point of being top end of league of, of the championship, pushing to go into the Premier League, and obviously we got there, and and it was like we weren't going to be able to spend millions and millions on a proven article every time. So I think Craig cost us 400, I think. Um, but then we loaned him straight back to Rochdale, but which again was right for 12 months, let him go and play there. I think he got some like 16, 17 goals for Rochdale as they got promoted. Yeah. I remember crazy. Yeah. And and again, like I wonder how, I don't know how many, but the over half must've been from set plays that easily must've been from like getting his head on things. Cause he just attacked everything. Didn't he? And his timing, he had bricks, wouldn't he? Dorse. But his timing was so good. It yeah. wasn't a coincidence. Anyway, so he was one, and he was a slow burner with us. Obviously, he went out on loan to Bolton. He might have gone to Bristol City at one point. If, if you remember, he got an eye injury that kind of kept him in, which was good because he then he then ended. I think it was Jonas that was injured. It was it in the warm up maybe or just prior to us playing QPR on a Saturday afternoon. We won one nil, and Dorse made his full debut. And um, so he was one massively. The one that I really over a long period of time was convinced about we've touched on him already with Shane Long I just you know I just I loved him um everything about his work rate he was deceptively quick if he wasn't having a good day himself he could still occupy center halves and do a job for the team he was unselfish he had the ability to score on occasion unbelievable goals like he did the two against Villa that night mm. we drew 2-2 and we just faded away in the game didn't we but the two goals he scored that night were phenomenal he had he had everything that we wanted at that time. He was never going to be top class Man United, Chelsea, Tottenham, but for us and where we were and what we hoped to be and achieve. And again, it's that question of what is success for your club. He was one who I was personally convinced about, and it wasn't a case of having to convince people. It was just a case of saying, Spiro, can you go and watch him mm. rather than going abroad to wherever this weekend? Can you go? down the road to Reading or to watch Reading at Norwich, whatever it might have been, because Spiro lived that way over. Um, and Spiro liked him. And then you get a load of other... Because we were lucky in having a, a, a solid body of scouts. So in any given weekend, no matter where Reading at that time were playing, we could get him watched. So I remember we had 30-odd reports on Shane. Yes, the majority were mine. And I was like, you're asking for a personal one, because it's never just you. It's no. never. It's everybody collectively. You know, and that's the that that's the strength of it. But he and, was, and then Roy fell in love with him as well, didn't he? It's hard not to because he was such a genuine lad as well. You know, he, everything about Shane was what should epitomise a, a an ambitious but moderately. You know, he knew how good he was, but at the same time, he was very humble. He was very quiet, mild mannered, and then he had a little bit of a heart scare, didn't he? With his, I think his, I think his father had passed away, mm. and he was concerned he might have a, a, a an hereditary condition. But proved not to be, thankfully. But he was just an absolute gem, in my opinion. And he was one that I, I do take pride in the fact that we got him over the line. But there are others, you know, I remember uh, someone like even Reedy, Stephen Reed, like Dan phoned me and said, What do you think? I'm like, just his injuries. Mm-hmm. I said, But as a character and as someone who can perform at the level, be it in midfield, he may have been fading a little bit as a midfield player or wide right player as he sometimes played, but as a fullback, in terms of knowing the job and being able to do something, you know, to, to perform at the level for, for, for us, 
he was one again who I was delighted we signed, but it didn't come from me. Mm. But collectively, as a recruitment team, we would we were asked for our opinions. And, and again, I think Dan spoke to Mick McCarthy, I think, about him at length, about presumably you know, the Irish connection, the national team connection there. But he was another one who who I was delighted we got him in because you knew what sort of a character he was. Yeah. And for us, we we were we were big on character. We had to be big on character. And Reedy, as you know, is one of the finest people I've ever met. What in a pro. What a pro. Not just that, just as a person. Yeah. Not just about forget the football. Yeah. As a person, he's an absolute belter. He's an absolute diamond. Well, we needed so, that around that time on loan, didn't we? We Because he got us over the line on loan uh, at the end of that season. season. Yeah, he yeah. did, yeah. And then obviously I think there was a toing and froing about getting it over the line per, on a permanent basis. But he was one who I took satisfaction from the fact that it wasn't my doing, but I was delighted that the club brought him in because mm. he was the perfect individual for the club at the time. Yeah, when you when you get to know what the club is about, you get to know the likes of Jonas Olsen, you get to know, you know, Graham Dorans having been there already, quiet lad, but he had a little bit of X factor in the championship. Yeah, you know, he was was it 16 goals he scored for us that season? Yeah, he was our top scorer. A lot of goals, yeah. So, you know, those sort of individuals, you because of how they were, you knew what the sort of characters you wanted to bring into the club on top of that to complement and and move move forward with. And really was as Shane was, as Craig was, the right sort of characters. And that's what I kind of get to. When we started to get two or three years down the line and we started to bring in certain people, that that they weren't of the right makeup for me. Yeah, um, And it's very easy to sit back and say that now, but I was saying it at the time. I I have to say I love I love Shane. Um, there was there was a couple of little things that quirky things I loved about Shane because he was he was a big character, wasn't he? I always remember having it was after the it was after the Liverpool game. You remember when he won won us um, that penalty, getting ahead of I think it was Martin Skirtle. And, and I just himself, hadn't he? Yeah, I think he won us two penalties, and then Peter won us. Yeah. Another, did we? Yeah, and he anyway, scored, but Shane had missed one. Yeah, First yeah, day of we, the season. And uh, oh no, I think I'm I'm uh, yeah yeah I think it might be or I might be getting muddled up with the with, with the Brunty scoring two penalties game. But either way, I, I I had a bit I just had a chat with him. Maybe we just stood in the corridor and I, and I just said to him, I said, Shane, you're shorter than me. How do you bully these big centre halves? And uh, Shane just turned to me and went, I played hurling as a kid. If oh, you give you the cent- if you give the centre backs a stick, I'll be scared of them. <laughs> But listen, but but just a, a great player, massively underrated in my opinion, because he was a team player rather than individual, and that's what we had to be, didn't we? You know, we, we were all about that. Even you know, and someone who wasn't as good a player necessarily, but was still important to us in getting out of the league was was Coxie, and 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 he was great around the building as well. He, he lived just across the road, didn't he? And and he was always like in at half seven, eight o'clock when we were having breakfast. He was having it with us. Those little things. Add up within a squad, you know. Coxie was great that year, yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, got his chance in the Premier League and was a little bit of an underrated player as well. You look back at some of the, and I've, I've got a lot of DVDs from the time. Do you know what I mean? That, that we're gathering dust now, to be fair, because we moved on from those, haven't we? But I used to look back at them and, and watch season by season and enjoy it. And Coxie was instrumental in a, in the, even that Premier League campaign. 
I mean, obviously, we, we we've we've just come to the end of end of a transfer window, and 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 as 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 we as we said at the at the top, um, Stu, you know, it was in the end, uh, you say obviously uh, quite rightly that a lot of the work was done beforehand, but um, but but like a lot of the deals for Hull were were were, were late in the were late in the window towards the final day. Just the bigger picture on that, because I think it's something that fans struggle to understand especially when they're supporters of championship clubs why does so much business get done so late in in the window i don't think it's a coincidence that you see the gigantic clubs the ones with enormous budgets doing their business early and then mm-hmm. it it sort of it seems like the trickle down for the either the lesser premier league clubs or particularly the championship clubs getting loans in seems yeah. to be very very late can you just uh, give us a little bit of context as to why window after window that's the way it happens yeah i think again there's different facets to this as well but i think um you as a championship club whether you're a big championship club or a lesser championship club you still have a a place in the pecking order, and you're waiting for dominoes to fall. You're waiting for that first big move, then the next move, then the next move out of a club or into a club for something else to happen. I can actually give you a perfect example of this summer. We have had a liking for Tyler Morton um, for a long time. Um, obviously saw a lot of him playing for Blackburn last year, a Liverpool player, been around the Liverpool team a little bit, played a number of games for them anyway. But I thought he was exceptional for Blackburn last year in terms of his game understanding, his use of the ball, his ability to control the tempo, be it speeding it up or calming it down. He was someone that we had a liking for over a period of time. We were in the position, and again, I don't have much to do with this. This is done by people of Lee's level and you know the, the hierarchy of the football club in terms of setting things up. We thought we had something in place for Tyler Morton uh, a week or two prior to the deadline. On the bank holiday Monday at the start of the week, I'm on my way to a, a National League game and I get a phone call from Lee saying, we need some more options, Tyler Morton staying in. Now, I think Klopp had kind of like decided that having lost a number of players, um, he had to get one or two, certainly at least one, frontline midfield player in before he could let Tyler Morton go on loan for another season. So you have a place. And Liverpool, in this case, didn't bring anyone in until the last day or two of the window, which then freed Tyler up to go. Now, we had a chance. We could have taken one of two other midfield players and we made a bid for one of them. I'm not going to say who, but we made a bid for one and that player turned us down anyway. But I'm glad he did because in the end, that player I don't think would have been perfect for us, whereas Tyler is. We didn't take that second player or the third one. And in the end... Tyler became available on the Friday morning because Liverpool had got someone in for the frontline squad to allow him out. So you're always waiting for something. And then it was agreed in no time. We'd already had the deal agreed. The prince, you know, in terms of contribution to wages, et cetera, was already done again, not by me, by people way above me. Um, but as soon as like Lee came into the room and said, like, Tyler Morton is a goer, are we saying yes? We were like, absolutely, 100%, get it done. And thankfully, we did. So that just shows you that it can go right down to the wire. We were never going to get Tyler Morton at the start of the window. Whoever may have been in for Tyler Morton or, or a another midfield player, centre forward, whatever, from a Premier League club, you're not going to get them done unless they are completely surplus and are not necessarily well regarded. I think 
I'm trying to think whether Tyler had signed a new deal actually. And sometimes it, it is dependent on a player signing a new deal before they let them out. Yeah. So that's just one example of how you are in a pecking order and you have to wait for other things to happen before they can trigger your move. I suppose as well, Stu, on, on that, it's it, there's a little bit of like hold, uh, holding your nerve about this as well because uh, because you could probably say with the Tyler Morton thing that you could you could end up moving you could move down your list maybe a week before the the end of the window and find somebody who you don't maybe like as much but is available now and get that deal done just to have it done, dusted and out the way. But if you really, really want a player and you think there's a possibility they'll open up in the last day, two days, three days of the window, I, I imagine it's 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 a matter of holding your nerve and asking yourself the question, how much do we want this player? Yeah, but then you can lose them and, and you cannot go and replace that one with the one that you could have done. Like, for example, as I said, in this particular case, Tyler was our number one was for that particular role to come in and play as a double pivot, they, you know, sit with Mika Seri. We already have Regan Slater who's doing well, but it's a squad game. So Tyler was our number one. So as I've just alluded to already, we thought we, we thought that had gone. But at the same time, you're thinking if Liverpool bring one in, he could still become available. And that is what happened. But had we managed to get, excuse me, one of the other two, we would have done it. Because you can't be left with nobody. You have yeah. to go and get somebody. And if you're told with all good faith that your number one target isn't available, if you then move on, you move on. Because what happens if you wait and you take the gamble that maybe he becomes available at the end of the window and then he doesn't? You've got nowhere. You have to try and set a deal up and you have to have plates spinning. You can't sort of like put all your effort into one player and then at three o'clock in the afternoon on deadline day, it's not happening and try and pick someone up from scratch. You can't. Yeah. You've got to have wheels spinning, plates spinning, everything in motion. You know, Dan was a master at our place. We had one, when we took Claudio, we had another midfield player very, very close to coming. And he ended up playing in England, not far away from, from West Brom. But we wanted Claudio. And so once Claudio was over the line, we politely let the other one go. But, you know, you have to have options all the time. And, um, yeah, you it's a great question to ask and not every single player of interest works that way. But I think typically speaking, when play, when supporters, whatever, get a little bit agitated, understandably, because they want to see their squad get better. Mm-hmm. Unless you've got a lot of money to throw at players that can players who are available for whatever reason, you can't dictate. If you're taking players like West Brom took the boy from Brighton and what have you, you've got to wait for them to come available. And, and, and sometimes it's late. Sometimes it's early for whatever reason. But if it's it's typically if that Premier League club has managed to strengthen where they want to, then that player or those players may then become available in good time. And managers always want to have their squad together early. Yeah, yeah. we were fortunate in Liam Delap um, because he became available quite early, probably because on the face of it, he'd had two loans last year at Stoke and Preston where people maybe didn't think he'd done as well as had been expected. But I think that was down to the way he he was being played in those teams. When you look at his particular strengths, his assets, you, and he's still a developing player, and hopefully we've got him in a season where it is his kind of like breakthrough season. But my, but my if and again, you're always challenging your own opinion of players. You've, you watch him through the age groups, and he's a big specimen of a lad, physically speaking. 
He's a lovely kid. He wants to score. He can finish, but he works extremely hard with and without the ball. Now, he was one who, through the age groups, has been prolific and just bullied people into, into oblivion in some games. Then he has those two loans last year. I don't think Stoke really suited him um, because they played quite direct. I mean, I went to one game. In fact, he scored against Cardiff. But the ball's like, it's up and around his upper body rather than being played into his feet. And he's got very good feet, by the way. I don't know if you've seen the goal he scored at Leicester. But the touch that he took, the double touch that he took on a 70-yard cross-reel ball was fantastic. So he was one whereby, from the start of summer, really, we knew that he might be available early. So we took him relatively early, and and, and he was able to go on our pre-season training uh, camp in Turkey and, and, and bed in. So managers always want players early, but it's not always possible. It just isn't. And I think, you know, managers do know that. They'll make noises and overtures towards the board or whoever to try and bring these players in. And yes, you want to do that, but it's not always possible. And it is a case of being patient, but it is a case of also being adaptable to then make a different move if you need to when it becomes apparent that a player won't come. And again, Tyler ended up coming in, thankfully, but we were pushing for another couple prior to him actually dropping. Thing that I always think makes it even more difficult for championship clubs because you know I mean it seems like the crux of what you're saying is the Premier League clubs hold a lot of the cards, which you know is not particularly surprising. They've got the biggest squads, they've got the they've they've got the best players, and they've got the most money. But the fact that the EFL window closes on the deadline, that is it done and the the Premier League one can do a deal sheet and then have extra time to complete the deal I feel like it 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 leaves the EFL clubs at a disadvantage and I've never quite understood why there's different rules for the EFL and the Premier League I find it odd I don't know I mean you find I think everyone would when you look at the Luke Armstrong thing now with his his move from Harrogate to you know, to Rex and collapsing. Well, well, it well it cost it cost us last season, Stu. Obviously, we ha- we had um, uh, uh, Alzate and uh, and and Josh Onama lined up to come last summer. Alzate is a hell of a player, by the way. So so yeah, I mean that was very unfortunate. Um, but I, I get frustrated because sometimes people at football clubs get the blame for things, and it's not their it's not their fault. It's not their doing. Things happen. Things shift elsewhere. That makes it impossible especially towards the end of a window when you've literally got sometimes hours and minutes to spare. It's, but it is a bit, I, I feel so, and again, I'm part of a football club and I've had like, I think it's 29 windows now. I've been at a club on deadline day waiting for things to happen. And like the one that obviously at our place, I say our place, at, at West Brom, that, that obviously frustrated was Romilly coming back. Mm. And that wasn't necessarily about the deadline, but it was kind of like, we thought we had him done and in which case we wouldn't have taken Victor, yeah, but then it, it just fell that obviously they took him and Victor became available and was done. And but Victor wasn't a number one choice, and that's and again, it's talking after the event, but he wasn't. No, really... I, I, I had Romelu's welcome back graphic done and everything. That's uh, you know, I thought honestly, he, he'd requested footage to study prior to his first game for us, mm. so he thought it was done, and then for whatever reason, you know, money got involved. Was it Kevin Morales? No, it's, it, it it was it, Fellaini went to Man United, didn't it? Didn't he? And they suddenly were flush with cash, and I think they didn't they chuck a massive loan fee at Chelsea. Yes, absolutely. But again, you know, we, we thought we, as you know, genuinely thought he was done. We were skipping in the canteen. 
thinking we had him back for another year. And honestly, that you know, the difference he would have made at that time to us. Yeah. Wow. I mean, he'd been a he'd been a phenomenal success anyway as a kid. So what he would have been another year later for another year under Steve Clark, by the way, mm. would have been brilliant for him. I'm not. I mean, he went on to Everton and did great things anyway for them. Don't get me wrong, but for us as a club, you're only bothered about your club, or you should be. And um, he'd have been, yeah. I don't, but so that's that was frustrating. But I wouldn't blame West Brom for it. Supporters will turn around and blame you because they 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 don't. And again, it's why would they know? They're not involved in it as close up to things as we are. But you do things for the right reasons, and sometimes they don't come off. And that one didn't. And again, you look at, you know, the two that you mentioned at West Brom last year. I don't know what went on to to stop it from happening, but it was, you know, things just not getting agreed in time, medicals not getting done in time. Was there not one with um, the guy from West Ham as well once that was in the building and didn't get done? The centre forward, Cole? Yeah, yeah, I think so. uh, yeah, no, there was he was pictured in the building. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But then it didn't happen for whatever reason. And he did he not get a little bit upset about it? Yeah, he did. I mean that and that was but that was another one where, you know, just kind of got beyond the beyond the deadline. But as you say, still, I mean you know, we we've we've both sort of seen it. These these things happen, don't they? Yeah, and again, a little bit to do with West Brom. When I was at Burnley, I just moved to Burnley twenty fifteen. Um, that window, I moved in the middle of the window, and we tried to take Graham Dorans, and um, he was at, he was in the building at Burnley in the morning, deadline day morning. He was there, he was coming, all agreed, and then Tony Pulis pulled him back, and he went to Norwich, so that left us high and dry, because yeah, we we had him to all intents and purposes in the bag, and he slipped out of it. So it just shows you until it's done, it's not done, and it's so frustrating. For, and I wouldn't necessarily blame. Burnley at that time, I wouldn't blame whoever may miss out on a player because things happen that are beyond your control sometimes. The the one I always remember, Stu, I don't, I, I, I can't remember whether this was before you, uh, before you joined full time or or not, uh, was was Majid Bouguera, um, because I'd come in in before. in the in the morning to uh, he'd been there the day before I'd met him um and uh, and he said I'll I'll speak to you tomorrow I'll speak to you in the morning so I'd come mm-hmm. in I'd got my questions ready I'd got my camera set up and everything and I was just literally sat in the sofas um out uh, out in reception waiting for Majid to come in and as you know we'd got the we'd got the big screen mm-hmm. that always had sky sports news on there and uh, I just I just went uh Dan because his his office <laughs> was next to mine and Dan came out, and there's Majid Bouguera arriving at Glasgow Rangers. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there at the time, but I remember it happening. Yeah, so it just shows, doesn't it? But I, I understand the the, the the supporters' frustrations because I am a supporter of, of of Stockport historically. But you become a supporter of the club you're working for. Mm. You do. You can't help it. So at the time, I'm even though I was part time, I was still a West Brom supporter so to speak and you do feel crestfallen and you do have a frustration but it, it seriously the, the, the people involved are doing their utmost to try and bring these people in and sometimes the the spanner in the works is not of their making they can't control it so i do feel for people whether it's at west brom last year whether it's at clubs i've been at myself including west brom when things fall down and you you can't control it it's so unfortunate but you do get blamed for it because people need someone to point a finger at Absolutely, I mean, we'll because we'll, uh, I've re- you've been very generous with your time, Stu, but I'm well aware of the fact that I'm, I'm keeping you well into the. I could in talk the, all night, mate. Don't worry about as, that. 
as as could I, mate. And I'm I, to be honest, I'm sure people could listen to this all all, all night as well. <laughs> well, I'll I'll listen to it, and and so so will Pete on that Portuguese beach. So, um, but uh, I just wanted to ask you about the sort of like wider market in in the championship because it feels like after a couple of years where it's been a bit quiet, maybe. Um, Premier League clubs haven't been buying as much from the championship that it seems to have kicked back into gear uh, this summer and uh, and that that and I don't know whether it's because the the Premier League have found a new market to sell their players to in the in the Saudi league um but it seems like suddenly there's there's big transfers uh, going on between the championship and uh, and uh, and the the Premier League Southampton have obviously made a lot of lot of money you know Bristol City with Alex Scott uh, um going to going to Bournemouth there's there's been some really really you know big transfers well over 10 million a number of them I mean, first of all, is it good that that market has started going again because because it seemed like there was a bit of a lean period? But does it also create a bit of a disparity of 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 wealth between those who've had players to sell this summer and those who who haven't? Maybe, but again, I look back to to West Brom days, and we used, you know, when I was working part time, you know, we sold Lee Hughes, whoever else, and I think it's there's a lot to be said for generating profit on players that can then be hopefully put to good use going forward. I think, yes, you get the landmark ones, like, you know, Scott, et cetera, moving for, for good money. David Brooks had moved for good money as well out of Sheffield United. I think they were championship then. Um, you know, the, you, you'll always get those, but the, but they're never as big as obviously the the touted move for Salah and all the rest of it, you know, the ones that have gone. Even, even the sort of lesser, so-called lesser players out of Man City who have moved into Saudi and what have you, they've still gone for buckets of money. So that the market is distorted, and again, that figure of money to Man City is probably a drop in the ocean, but to most clubs, it is still significant. And if you're talking about championships club clubs specifically, I think, and again, I'm, you look at West Brom and one or two of the players that brought that they brought in, I think you can look at now and say perhaps they paid over the odds, Carlin Grant, etc. You can look at that and say, well, are you ever going to get that back? Grady Diangana as well, another one who. I would have taken him, especially what he did in that first season at West Brom. You'd always say yes, take him into the, and that was Premier League then, wasn't it? And they took yeah. the, the you know the risk on 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 the fee. So you're taking it knowing that you've got a chunk of money coming from the TV rights, etc. But it's still a big risk. Yeah. Um, and I think those deals are obviously less prevalent. But I think there's an onus on clubs to bring players in that are going to have future resale value. Now, part of our model, I'm talking about obviously Hull City now, part of our consideration has got to be because our owners, much as they are very, very generous and much as they have upped the game big time for us from where we had to be before that, our owners have not got bottomless pits. Mm. You've got to be prepared to try and help them out a little bit by trying to bring in players who can then do really well for you, hopefully take you a long way forward, but be recognised by clubs above you and 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 ultimately be bought for significant amounts of money it's getting harder i think to do that because you haven't got or in the past certainly we haven't had huge amounts of money to play with to bring those players in if you can just invest a little to realize a lot then that's perfect we have got one or two very good young players at our club one in particular who came in for a very low fee which was down to our head of emerging talent a guy called dan kelly who does a brilliant job for us 
um, identified and we brought in Harry Vaughan um, last January. And he kind of like has, has um, accelerated through to becoming a first team squad player, but played a lot of games towards the end of last season, mainly through necessity because we had a lot of injuries, but took his chance and was brilliant. Now, he may have a season now whereby he's in and he's out of the team, but his overall development, I think, will be steadily upwards. So at this point, you never know. Anything can happen. He could be injured on and off. Um, he could lose his place in the in the team to a you know somebody's performing better. And at the moment, he's on the bench. But we've actually benefited from bringing in a number of good players this you know this summer. And but he's still one who I personally have high hopes for, without putting too much burden of expectation on a young boy. But he's got such enthusiasm. He's like he's like a bottle of pop. He's I know it's a hackneyed phrase, but he is. He's so talented, and he's someone who I think we as a club have got high hopes for. Um, but there are others in our club who are also talented. Like Regan Slater, we brought in from Sheffield United for fifty or thereabouts thousand pounds. Came in on loan initially, brought him in on a permit, and he's one of our mainstays. He's so consistent. He's got a brilliant attitude. And there was one thing through the COVID season. I was kind of fortunate in that we needed somebody to go and do team assessments through, this is the League One season that Hull City won the league. I was the person chosen to go and do a lot of team assessments. So I was travelling up and down the country on empty motorways, by and large, watching a lot of football in preparation for upcoming games. Now, Regan was on loan at the time for Sheffield United, and he wasn't in the team. For the vast majority of that season, we had like Richie Smallwood, one or two others who were in the team first and foremost. But the thing about him was he was always ready to come into the team. I was I would go into team meetings, team briefings on the Friday before the Saturday or the Monday before the Tuesday, whatever. And he was always, always tuned in to what he was being told by the, the, the analyst, by the gaffer, Grant McCann, uh, et cetera, by Cliff Byrne. Um, and he, you could, again, you look around the room and there are some players who you think are not quite in, you know, engaged enough in what they're being told. But he was one who was always at it. Now, he's he was ready to play. And when he got in the team, he played some like 14, 15 games solid. And we went unbeaten till the end of this. Well, we lost the last game of the season, but we were already up. So he did a great job. But he's now one of our mainstays. And he's one who there was interest at several million in the summer. And we you know, kind of like, I don't think it ever got to the point of being a bid. But there was a suggestion that there might be one from a fellow championship club. But I take that as a as a as a feather in our scouting cap that you know we, we were watching Regan Slater playing for Sheffield United 21s, 23s at the time at Stocksbridge on a bumpy pitch that's uneven, it's on a slope. But you do your work and you bring someone like that in and take a gamble that has, in that case, come off. But he's one who I would say that you could sell if you if you so wished. I don't think we want to, don't think he wants to go. Because he's, you know, he's bought into the club and he's he's a Sheffield boy, so he's not a million miles down the road. So he's been great. Harry's been great, and we have others as well. Some like Jacob Greaves has come through the ranks. Mm-hmm. You know, Andy Smith is another young centre half who's come through the ranks and is starting to get his foothold, having had a year and a half at Grimsby. These experiences are massive. Playing men's football, Keen Lewis Potter went on loan to Bradford Park Avenue and barely got a kick, but it was part of his development playing in and in and around a men's team on a Saturday when it matters to those players that he's playing alongside, they're playing like a relatively low level of non-league football, but it matters to them every week. And that did Keane a huge amount of good. And then he comes into the setup the year after and has two seasons where he plays pretty much every minute. And then he goes to Brentford for 20 odd million. So 
those things are, are the lifeblood of clubs like ours. And I do include West Brom in that because I think in the future, West Brom will need to get back to producing players. And they had a bit of a golden period under Mark Harrison and Steve Hopcroft where players came in and were developed and Mark Naylor as well and one or two others that we all know that we work with. That crop of players, you know, you include Remain. I know Remain came back, but you look at some of those players, they were outstanding in terms of, their, you know, the boy that, what was his name, I beg your pardon, Ferguson, Nathan Ferguson? Nathan Ferguson, yeah. Yeah, another one that, that came through the ranks and perhaps got sold a little bit too soon. But the, but there was you know, still players who have made or could have made significant amounts of money for that football club. Side I'll obviously talk about didn't in the end, sadly. But the talent was was definitely there. And I think there's always got to be that. You know, and there's I don't know too much at the moment about this current crop of 21s at, at West Brom, but I believe there are one or two very good young players. Mm-hmm. They've got to be given the opportunity at some point. But it's when does that happen? And when does your coach, obviously the, the onus is on the coach to get results. And the, the pressure on West Brom is still big, even though you're not expected to necessarily be right top of the league this year. But the, the, the fact that, you, that your manager managed to get you out of the doldrums to the fringes of the playoffs was yeah. hugely impressive, really. And obviously he did very well at Huddersfield as well. So you've probably got someone there who you can, you can trust. But is he the type, I don't know this, I don't know whether a yes or no is the answer, but is he the type who will give young players a chance to come in and actually go and flourish? Or, or is he going to be a little bit more reserved and go with tried and tested consistently I don't know the answer but I hope that West Brom and obviously ourselves I'm looking I'm looking primarily from from the perspective of my own club now mm. but we will give young we've got a manager in Liam Rossini who will give young players their head 100% 100% obviously Liam the lapis he's not our player sadly in some respects but he will give him a chance and he'll become a much better player for Manchester City or whoever may take him in the long term he may or may not be for Man City in the end, who knows? But he's in a very, very good place with our way of playing, with you know, with Liam's coaching style, the positivity around the place is 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 brilliant at the moment. So we have a long way to go at our club at the minute. But I think you know, you you asked the question about making money on players. It's imperative that you still that you can still do that. We've just, you know, we've taken Jaden Philogene from Villa for what to us is a lot of money. Yeah, but the hope is that we've got him on an upward trajectory at a time when he can find a home, having had his loans at Stoke and Cardiff, find a home, bed in, play in a team that wants to be um, conducive to the way he wants to play on the front foot and that he can be a big, big success with us. And if, that, if that's the case, then obviously we will realise some profit on him if that's the case. Who knows? He might, he might not. But he's got the opportunity at our place to actually flourish big time. So yeah. things like that can happen. I mean, that's that's the hope for all Albion fans too, is that we that we can get back to that because uh, because we were good at it for a long while. Whether that was producing young talent, whether that was bringing in players who appreciated in value, um, and you know, this is no disrespect to those uh, who are there now, because I honestly believe those who are there now are trying to right the wrongs of the uh, of the past few years. But there undoubtedly have been wrongs in the past in the past few years because uh, because we wouldn't we, we haven't made profit on many players outside of Matias Pereira really to be honest yeah. with you um and you know we've obviously let people like Sam Johnston go on a free which for me is not selling at the, at the right time yeah. um and then you know the whole of a extremely successful um both recruitment and um uh, and youth department have left the club which is a lot to replace in 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 a short period of time 
I'm biased because I work with them and because I know them and I like them and I have huge respect for them. But the likes of Hoppy, honestly, so good at what they do. Mm. Um, and I work with someone now who I think is equally in terms of where he might go with his career and how successful he might be as the head of emerging talent, Dan Kelly, who again, Lee appointed, came from Exeter City. He's similarly talented, in my opinion. Who knows? It can go, you know, careers can go up and down and no career necessarily goes on a, on a flat line upward trajectory. I say flat line, I mean like, a, you know, yeah. a 45 degree upward push. Yeah. But but at the moment, I'm working with someone who I think has got a fantastic eye for players, um, emerging talent, wherever, and has got the enthusiasm to go and spread his net nationally at whatever level to do the hard work to bring those players in. Now, Hoppy was obviously brilliant in terms of his his management of the local scene and at the time we at West Brom we didn't have the, the 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 capacity to go and compete even with Blues and Villa to go and bring in the very best of the local um, scene but the players they still managed to bring in and coach honestly such good players and that's because you had such good people at the club bringing them in and let's hope that we can we can get back to that because it seems like um, it, it it certainly seems like Hull are on an upward trajectory. You know the the the, the mere start to the season. I know I know you're not going to want to blow your own trumpet, but uh, but uh, uh, because you because of course you can't. You've got to keep your feet on the ground. But it does it, it seems like you know good good business and uh, and uh, and as you say a lot of good young players coming through which for me is always is always a recipe for uh, recipe for success i can't i just hope that we can we can get back to that because what what we're not at the moment and this is borne out purely in the financial data that we all know about is we're not a sustainable club um as as you say we're we're propped up by a very very good manager at this at this at this present moment in time and um you know, but but what we are doing at the, at present is not sustainable in the long term because we you know we need to get back to developing players relatively cheaply and it's improving a, them. It's a fine balance. You do have to do that. Every club really, <clears throat> excuse me, should have at the heart of, them, of their business plan, so to speak. That element has got to be part of it. It's a difficult balancing act to bring in tried and tested. The, the the level of experience but the one thing I've learned or one of the things I've learned from different clubs from different managers character is so so important we had a player in league one Richie Smallwood who came from Blackburn had been he's been a serial promotion winner from 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 league one with Doncaster I think Rotherham Blackburn under Tony Mowbray and he athletically not great you know but his personality his character as a solid citizen around the building as a leader was so important to us in League One and in establishing ourselves and staying up in league in in the championship, half a season under Grant, half a season under Shutter. Big, big player for us. Not a superstar, but a great character. And I talk, I've touched on Regan Slater already. Great character. Jacob Greaves, real good character. Sean McLaughlin from Cork, 65 grand. What a good player. Mm. But what a good person. One Greg Doherty from Rangers. Being around a club in Rangers, which was used to winning. Okay, they might have had a bit of a fallow period, but it's a big, big club that has a winning mentality. Those things all matter. And we've touched on, at the start of our conversation, on on, on, on the importance of knowing what characters are like. And we sometimes, you don't get them all right. You sometimes think they're going to be here as you identify good players. They might not be the greatest of people. But we're lucky at Hull that we have got a very tight-knit group of really good lads. Louis Coyle from Leeds, you know, went to Fleetwood, etc. But a whole lad, 
and again, athletically, you wouldn't say he's 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 not a Kyle Walker. Do you know what I mean? But my goodness me, what a fantastic person, captain of the football club. He's outstanding. Well, I mean, Jonas Olsen and Gareth McCauley, uh, yeah, Stu. If you, if you if you if you took them as as athletes, I mean, you know, both both good players. But as you say, n- neither were neither were exceptionally quick in any in any way, shape, or form. But they, but they were they were just un- born winners and unbelievable characters and mentality yeah. monsters who just wanted to learn the game, didn't they? Listen to Jurgen in the background there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but no, I just you touched on. I think they were deceptively quick, and I think and I, and I think you'd never say they were rapid. You know, what I mean, don't get me wrong, but they had long gates, they had long stride patterns. Mm. They read it and they read it early, so they probably they perhaps looked quicker than they in essence were. But Jonas was, well, Jonas could cover ground. Don't worry. But no, I, th- I think you're right. But again, I, you know, you, you look at the whole makeup of things, and character is hugely, hugely important. Along with, it's just a difficult blend. And there's no like magic wand. You have to try, and, and you will get things wrong. As a recruiter, as a manager, head coach, whatever you want to term it these days, you will make mistakes, but obviously you want to limit that. And and um, I think for the first, and again, I'm talking about my own club at the moment. I'm looking at Hull City, and I'm quite excited. Yeah, you know, without wanting to get carried away because seasons are long, injuries happen, suspensions happen, different things crop up, and we didn't get everybody that we wanted to come into the football. We didn't. We didn't. Um, but at the same time, I think what we have got is an improvement on what we had before. And that's, the, you know, we are moving forward. But I think, again, at West Brom, I think we improved most years, if not every year. But other clubs around us in the Premier League were then improving at a faster rate than we were. Hmm. And it was difficult for us to compete going forward. And I think there is always that cycle as well of maybe four or five years. And you think, am I done at this club? I don't know. Um, but I think at, at West Brom, honestly, again, I'm going on to a different subject, really. I was... I've never been so upset leaving the club as I was then. I really did not want to go. I was very lucky that my colleague from West Brom days had offered me something at Burnley already. If I had, um, if I could never have left, I would never have left. That's for sure. But uh, it's just, it's a special club, as you know, it really is. But I'm, I'm working for a special club now in a different way. But it really is. I mean, um, every club had its foibles, but I've been at Hull for six years now. And it is a very particularly, it's a very strong community. The people are brilliant. The lads who've come through the, the club to, and get into the team, I'm talking Jacob Greaves now, obviously King Lewis Potter before, they are of a certain type and they are good, good people and they've got a great chance because of it. Uh, mate, mate, those are just beautiful sentiments, and I think, to be fair, that's that, that's a great place to leave it because otherwise we could talk all night, as we've said. Um, but I think both of our other halves would probably kill us if we did. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think I think mine's watching an entire series of Friends upstairs. To be fair, <laughs> but um, uh, but but, uh, but but Stu, I, I think uh, you know this has just been a fascinating couple of hours to sit here and and talk to you, and I think we, you know if if. You your game we're definitely gonna have to get you back on because there's just so much more we could talk about i'd love to i'll probably say the same things over and over again because as i say west brom was a special time for me i loved it 15 years of being immersed in it nearly and um yeah it's a it is a wonderful football club there's no two ways 
And, um, you know, I, I really wish the club all the very best. I really do. As long as you finish below us, that's fine. <laughs> and absolutely the same to you as well, with the same <laughs> caveat. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, as I say, if if it could be Albion 1, Hull 2. Do you yeah. know what? Actually, I wouldn't even care if you were, if you were first and we were second. If we get, as long as we get out of this, uh, <laughs> as long as we get out of this blooming division and get get Premier League money in the bank, that's, that's really oh, all that matters this season. It's, a, it's such a hard league. I mean, you look at, you know, the teams you'd expect to be up there, they probably will be. Leicester, Southampton, Leeds have had a bit of a dicky start, haven't they? You look at that and... Would, you, you, would at... you say it's probably as competitive as it has ever been? Because yes. I, I I think you could make a case for maybe, what, 14, 15 teams this season being in and around the playoffs. I think there's six or eight that will be, yeah, right up there. Um, and I think there's one or two who have started slowly like Middlesbrough who will come very good. And I think they've lost, you know, Archer um, and um, Akpom. They've lost a huge volume of goals. So replacing that is not going to be easy for them. I think that's probably part of why they've started so slowly. Um, but I think they will come right. Um, you know, we, again, you you bother about your own club. You look at us at Hull and we've, I think we've got one or two little areas where we're not quite as strong as we might need to be. But you want to get to January and be in a position whereby you can kick on and get into that mix at the end of it. I think our, our ambition, success for us, is probably being in and around the top eight and be able to try and push. That would be fantastic, but it's by no means guaranteed. I think you look at the top eight or nine clubs that you might expect, Leicester, Southampton, et cetera, they'll be right in there. Of course they will. Then I think there's quite a, a mix that are all like much for muchness, really, in terms of what the results might be consistency-wise. And I'd, I'd put us in there and I'd put you guys in there. I'd put Blackman in there, Stoke in there. Yeah, if you can find a consistent run, maybe two or three times through the season, it was always the case with us at West Brom, wasn't it? We had long periods where we went unbeaten, and you might have a bit of a fallow. You always have a fallow period somewhere in that season, but then we always managed to, especially in the championship seasons, we always managed to find that run again. And uh, I think that's going to be you know no different this time really, but it is going to be. I think you you know the question you asked, how competitive is it? Massively competitive, but I think Leicester will eventually stride away, personally. Yeah. It takes a very good team to go there and win one 0 the other week. I think <laughs> I, I don't disagree with you. I, I in my one to, in my one to twenty fours, I had them top. So again, we're 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 on the same page here, Stu. Stu, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been absolutely fascinating, and mm-hmm. and as I say, you know, we we will definitely have you back on if you if you fancy it. Whenever, of course, it's always a pleasure to talk about the club. Always. Trim- Tremendous! Thank you so much, right. mate. Well, that's uh, that's all for us uh, tonight on uh, on Albion analysis. We will, of course, be back after the Bristol City game to see if uh, Pete has got off that beach and wants to actually return to talking about football. Let's be honest: if he doesn't, who can blame him? But join us to find out. Until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with the McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.
This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.